Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on the channel, and today we are talking to Jonathan Coley about his book, Gay on God's Campus, Mobilizing for LGBT Equality at Christian Colleges and Universities. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Thank you for being here. So can you uh, start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, my name is Jonathan Coley. As you stated, I'm an assistant professor of sociology at Monmouth College currently. Um, We'll be joining the Department of Sociology at Oklahoma State uh, University this summer. Um, And this book um, really stemmed out, um, well, was inspired by um, my own experiences uh, working for LGBT equality at a Christian university. Um, I... uh, worked as an undergraduate to try to establish a gay-straight alliance at a conservative Baptist university in Birmingham, Alabama, Samford University. And uh, since then, when I got to graduate school, um, I've been really um, interested and inspired by a lot of uh, LGBT student mobilization um, at Christian colleges and universities. And so I decided to study it um, for Uh, my master's and dissertation, which then spawned this uh, book project. In the introduction, you sort of introduce us to three people who become archetypes of the things that you talk about throughout the book. So we've got Neil, we've got Ashley, and we've got Julie. So I'm hoping you can set the stage for us here by introducing them and sort of how they kind of set the stage for your book. Uh, In the book, I study four Christian colleges and universities, Catholic University of America, um, a very conservative Catholic university in Washington, D.C., uh, Goshen College, a uh, social justice-minded Mennonite college in northern Indiana, Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, and Loyola University, Chicago, a fairly liberal campus in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, so one of my uh, very first sites where I began uh, conducting interviews was at the Catholic University of America. Um, where I begin my book. I met these three very, very different individuals uh, very early on in my research who were nevertheless uh, involved in LGBT activism um, at a Christian university. Um, there was Neil, um, who is a, actually a self-proclaimed uh, anarchist, um, a gay man, but uh, someone for whom his political identity is really central. Um, he was actually an atheist who came to Catholic University um, not because of his school's Catholic identity, but because he was really wanting to be in Washington, D.C. Um, and he joined this LGBT group because uh, he experienced, um, he was the victim of a, a hate crime um, at Catholic University. Um, someone slashed the tires of his car, uh, spray painted his car, um, and uh, was really astonished by his treatment by school officials. On the other hand, I met 
a student uh, whom I called Ashley, um, who was a graduate student studying religion at Catholic University, uh, who told me, um, and this was her words, that she used to be a fundamentalist Christian uh, who very much believed that her own same-sex attractions were sinful. Um, she used to think that she would be sent to hell um, if she had uh, pursued a same-sex relationship and had some suicidal thoughts. So she was very much there at Catholic University because of her uh, religious identity. Her religious identity was very much central uh, for her. For her. Um, and she decided to become an LGBT um, activist, mostly because she had gone through this really intense um, process of re-socialization, uh, working through her own uh, religious beliefs about LGBT rights. Uh, and she became involved in the group um, to try to spread the word about how one could be gay and Christian. Uh, and then finally, um, I encountered this individual, Julie, who wasn't really much of a activist, didn't really have much of a political background, uh, wasn't particularly religious. Um, religious. Instead, she became involved in an LGBT group, mostly because she herself uh, was a lesbian, um, and she really wanted to meet others like her and to build spaces of LGBT inclusion on her campuses. Uh, so for me, these three individuals really um, represent a diverse mix of um, LGBT activists um, and are representative of a um, yeah three very different types of LGBT activists who nevertheless are all very engaged in trying to pursue social change. Great, thank you. So one of the things that you do in the introduction, uh, which I think is really helpful for the readers, is that you sort of introduce us to some you know, key terms that are used in like the social movement literature and in studies that study activism. And so I was hoping you could sort of go through some of what those are and how they related to your project. So for instance, you know, um, you actually give them a term of politicized participants and um, micro mobilization. So just sort of like helping us understand um, kind of the context that you're studying. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I draw on a body of literature on social movement participation, um, sometimes called micromobilization, uh, which is an individual's recruitment uh, into an activist group. And when I went on to the campuses of Christian universities like Catholic University, uh, I very much expected to meet people uh, like Neil, whom I call a politicized participant. Um, he had been socialized. Um, and uh, really taught um, political and religious um, teachings that very much aligned um, with uh, his involvement in an LGBT group. He had previously participated in an LGBT group. Um, he had something called attitudinal affinity with this LGBT uh, group, which simply meant he... Um, his beliefs, his values, um, again, aligned with the LGBT movement. Um, I use this term called microstructural availability, which is a fancy way of saying he was surrounded by friends. He was surrounded by um, classmates, um, people in his personal network, who all very much reaffirmed his identity um, as an LGBT activist. So the, the social movement participation literature 
um, had really emphasized those characteristics as being central to explaining social movement participation. Uh, and much of what I was doing by introducing the stories of um, Ashley, whom I call a religious participant, uh, someone participating in an LGBT group very much because of her religious identity. Uh, and by introducing people like Julie, who was an LGBT participant, someone who became involved in an LGBT group uh, because of her own, her own sexual identity, uh, was to try to show how some of these characteristics presumed to be central to social movement participation um, actually aren't always relevant for different kinds of activists. Um, so something that you point out in the introduction that I think, you know, maybe some people have asked you previously are why would you study LGBT students who are attending college, uh, Christian colleges in the first place? So I was hoping you could talk more about that and in terms of like how that led to your methods. So how you chose, um, like you talk in the book, um, you chose different locations um, and denominations. And so sort of how your methods came about from that. Yeah, absolutely. So I do get the question a lot of why study LGBT students at Christian colleges and universities? No one necessarily makes students go to these schools um, and Christian colleges and universities are, um, at least currently, um, thought to be protected by the First Amendment and their occasional desire to discriminate against LGBT students. Um, so I start out noting some of the diverse reasons that LGBT students attend Christian colleges and universities in the first place. Uh, some LGBT students are both LGBT and religious. Um, they're deeply religious oftentimes, and they seek out a place where they can grow uh, in their faith at the same time as they pursue a college degree. Um, other students um, attend um, a Christian college or university um, for reasons that would apply to straight and LGBT people alike. Um, they have gone to a school in a really exciting city like Chicago or Washington, D.C. They've gone to a school that is really great academically. They've gone to a school because they received a lot of financial aid there. Um, they've gone to the school because their parents encouraged them to do so. And this is the part that might surprise some readers, but some Christian colleges and universities are actually quite inclusive of LGBT students, or at least they advertise themselves um, as such. So I found that 55% of Christian colleges and universities in the U.S. currently have inclusive non-discrimination policies. Um, they do not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. 45% uh, of Christian-affiliated colleges and universities have LGBT student groups. Uh, and so they advertise themselves as quite inclusive um, when LGBT students are applying. Now, when LGBT students get there, um, oftentimes they encounter a campus culture that is not so welcoming, not so inclusive uh, in practice, and that um, inspires their subsequent activism. For example, at Loyola University of Chicago, um, a very um, a campus that seems very LGBT inclusive on the surface um, does not allow same-sex couples to get married on campus. Or Goshen College, it calls itself a social justice 
college. That's its identity. Um, it very much um, tells prospective students that it is inclusive because it does have an LGBT support group. Yet until 2015, it was firing any faculty or staff members who came out as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Um, and so LGBT students are mobilizing at many schools like this um, that um, say they're inclusive, um, but may not be um, highly inclusive in practice. And even those uh, conservative schools um, that don't yet have LGBT groups, um, even for those schools, it's not beyond the bounds of expectations that they'll be LGBT inclusive in five or 10 years. Um, because, well, Catholic University, one of the sites I studied, actually did have an inclusive non-discrimination policy in an LGBT group back in the 80s and 90s. And uh, Belmont University, a formerly Southern Baptist University, um, prohibited homosexual behavior, homosexual acts in its student handbook uh, up until 2009, uh, yet just a couple years later decided to, to change its tune. Um, so, um, there, there's hope for a lot of LGBT students, even at more conservative Christian colleges and universities. So this sort of leads into chapter one, where you, um, give us sort of the history of, um, activist groups that begin emerging on, uh, Christian campuses. And you talk about how it sort of starts in the eighties, but it definitely takes flight in the nineties and two thousands. Um, so I was hoping you could sort of give us that his a brief history and how you saw that tying in to your study? In many ways, the story of LGBT equality at Christian colleges and universities is fairly similar to the story of LGBT equality at the nation um, at large. Um, you began to see more and more LGBT people coming out, um, especially um, in the 70s, uh, late 60s, 70s, and 80s, inspired by other minority group movements. Um, public policy, and public opinion slowly began to change. Um, you saw more and more local um, cities as well as states adopt inclusive non-discrimination policies, for example. Um, and this just fed into a, a growing movement for LGBT equality, uh, culminating of um, perhaps um, in recent years by the Supreme Court's approval of same-sex marriage. And um, what's really important for my story of LGBT equality at Christian colleges and universities is that this, um, this growing drumbeat for LGBT equality um, really um, inspired several Christian, Christian denominations uh, with which Christian colleges are um, affiliated, such as um, the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, the United Church of Christ. Um, the Disciples of Christ, uh, among others, to embrace LGBT equality, um, which affirmed um, many students' efforts to promote LGBT equality on their campuses. And it's especially with the, the growing support of the religious community um, for LGBT people that you began to see so much mobilization for LGBT equality. Um, at Christian colleges and universities, um, especially by the, especially beginning in the 1990s, but especially by the 2000s and 2010s. Great, thank you. And so this sort of ties into 
um, some of the discussion in the chapter about, you know, the political environment, but also the idea um, you bring up resource mobilization theory in terms of, you know, you do find that wealthier schools are more inclusive, but you come away saying that, like, you know, denominations are really sort of what's important here. So I was hoping that you could talk about that, but also this database that you um, were using to to investigate that. Yeah, absolutely. So I did um, build an, a database of uh, the presence of LGBT support groups and the presence of inclusive non-discrimination policies. Um, for the 682 Christian colleges and universities I identified. And I found that um, a school's affiliated denomination um, or religious tradition um, really is the most important factor for a school's um, support of their LGBT students, although not always in the way people would expect. Um, because a Christian denomination's teachings on same-sex relationships um, does not necessarily lead all, all of those affiliated um, schools to exclude or include LGBT students. For example, the United Methodist Church um, currently says that same-sex relationships are sinful. The Roman Catholic Church says that um, homosexual acts, um, as it were, are acts of what they call grave depravity. Um, yet, um, Christian colleges and universities affiliated with the United Methodist Church and the Roman Catholic Church are actually quite inclusive of LGBT students. Uh, so, what I found is it's what I found is that it's the um, uh, Christian denominations' emphasis on social justice, its communal orientation, as I call it, uh, as opposed to an emphasis on personal piety. Um, kind of an obsession with uh, an individual's personal purity that predicts LGBT, inclus LGBT inclusion. So because the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the United Methodist Church, along with some of the denominations um, I mentioned earlier, do have a history of support for social justice. Um, they have communal orientations. Um, they generally do support their LGBT students. Uh, and it's the more individualistic denominations that emphasize personal piety, like the Southern Baptist Convention, like the Nazarenes or Assemblies of God. Um, it's their schools that generally exclude uh, and often discriminate their LGBT students. Um, so in chapter two, you move into this idea of the groups that you found. And something that I thought was really interesting in reflecting back on previous literature is that you know, the activist literature tends to show that people are often socialized into this. They report um, prior participation, but you actually found that that type of student was rather a minority, only 31% of your sample. And so I was hoping you could talk kind of a, about finding that out and like for you as the researcher, how you felt about that when you kind of came to this conclusion. Yeah, um, I was pretty surprised that, as you've mentioned, uh, fewer than one third of my respondents really exhibited most of the traits that prior research researchers had uh, said were so important for participation in an activist group. Uh, in another of my earliest interviews, I remember um, meeting this student at Belmont University who I call um, Beth. And I used to go through this spiel 
um, in my interviews that said, you know, my name is Jonathan Coley. I'm interested in this project, um, partly because I've been involved. Um, I've personally been involved in some uh, LGBT uh, protest, um, including at schools um, like Belmont University. And I was really surprised that uh, this student, Beth, um, who was actually a leader in her group at Belmont University, um, went on to tell me that she actually believed herself that same-sex relationships were sinful. And despite being attracted to other women, um, she will not go on to uh, marry another woman. She doesn't believe that's God's will for her life. Um, although she was really motivated to get involved with an LGBT group because she did want to dispel certain stereotypes about lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Because she did believe that LGBT people deserve rights, even if she has some qualms uh, with um, the theology. Um, so, um, like I mentioned, politicized participants do very much um, embody characteristics like prior socialization and prior activist group participation uh, and an attitudinal agreement with um, the LGBT movement. But students like Beth, um, these people really motivated by religious identities, um, they actually never reported prior activist group participation. They never reported socialization into pro-LGBT values. And only occasionally did they actually uh, agree with the LGBT movement when they joined. Um, and the largest group of all, um, the people participating simply because they were LGBT, that comprised the majority of participants, um, they too rarely had very highly politicized backgrounds. Um, and although they all agreed with the LGBT movement uh, when they joined, um, they they really do not exhibit the prototypical activist um, in many other ways. So, um, so meeting people like Beth really early on um, really sensitized me uh, to the diversity of uh, my respondents, really um, got me to rethink making any assumptions um, about the people I'd be meeting and uh, led to the results I described uh, in my chapter for something that really stuck out to me is this idea of identities and how sometimes it developed before they got involved, sometimes it develops after they get involved. Um, and so I was hoping you could just talk more about identities. Yeah, so I really I really did find that identity um, was kind of the key variable differentiating a lot of people uh, whom I talked to. Um, uh, so I met people with highly politicized identity for whom politics um, social justice was a motivating factor for their activism. Other people who were highly religious, that was the big factor. Uh, and people uh, who were LGBT, uh, first and foremost, and that's why they participated. Um, and um, so I met uh, a lot of people who were straight, um, or at least thought um, they might be straight when they first joined. Um, and so some of my religious participants and politicized participants, uh, they joined um, because they were straight or sometimes um, they would go on to come out as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. Um, but that's really only after participating in the group 
Uh, and after going a lot of the through a lot of the process of um, trying to unpack their identity um, that a lot of college students go through. Um, and so um, it certainly wasn't the case that um, all the students I talked to um, were LGBT. Um, so then in chapter three, you move into this typology. And uh, as someone who's not as familiar with like social activism research, I found that uh, table 3-1 on page 71 was actually really helpful because you sort of tie together the participants' identities, these three identities, and then the group ethos. So I was hoping that you could go through each one and kind of explain those to us. Yeah, absolutely. So Again, when I first started this research, um, I had already been well sensitized to um, insights from the social movement literature. And the social movement's literature defines a social movement um, as a group of people working with some degree of organization, uh, continuity, um, that deploy, and this is the key, um, extra institutional um, protest tactics um, in pursuit of social change or occasionally in defense of the social order. Um, extra institutional protest tactics, uh, for example, sit-ins, protests, um, rallies, um, they are methods of facilitating social change that do not require the group to um, work within the existing um, institutions that have been set up by society. The existing ways our society has set up to allow people to express their voice, such as the voting booth. And so I certainly um, did encounter some groups uh, working to promote LGBT equality that took this form. Um, they're what I call the direct action groups. Um, people for whom their politics were really central, the politicized participants, we're drawn to direct action groups that um, do seek structural or policy changes uh, through more confrontational, extra institutional forms of collective action. Um, but I also encountered two other types of activist groups that do pursue social change, but they do through uh, they do so through different means. So, educational groups uh, to whom religious participants were uh, particularly drawn work to establish a shared set of values uh, and to raise consciousness about those values in their community uh, through more institutional means or through more conciliatory means. So um, outside of group meetings, um, they often hold lectures. They bring in academic speakers. They often have movie showings or they just have um, ways of trying to pursue social change that involve getting the word out about LGBT issues, but not necessarily um, working outside the existing ways their colleges and universities have set up um, to allow for education. And then I met people who um, were active in what I call solidarity groups. So people for whom sexual or gender identity was really central were drawn to solidarity groups. Um, and they exist mostly to facilitate members' personal development, um, to assist members, for example, in their coming out processes, uh, and to connect uh, LGBT people with each other 
within a very safe space on campus. Um, these direct action groups, educational groups, and solidarity groups uh, comprise a, a field of LGBT activist groups on these Christian colleges and uh, university campuses. Um, also in chapter three, you it was kind of interesting because you also sort of did some analysis, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you sort of did some analysis of your interviews where then you wanted to go ahead and check using, you know, regular sort of modeling, uh, quantitative modeling, I mean, um, in terms of whether you find that these identities match up with the groups. Um, and you do find that, you know, you find that the activist identity is really tied to direct action groups and that the religious identity is tied to education. Um, but I thought something that was really interesting, and, and I'm referring to Table 3-2 on page 88, is this idea that, like, the LGBT identity, they do um, mostly talk about solidarity, um, but they also talk about direct action and educational. Um, and so I thought that that was kind of interesting. And, and did you feel like that when you were interviewing these students who you felt fit into that typology, that, like, those sort of groups, um, you know, had sort of more diverse um, goals, I guess? Or, like, how did, did you see that playing out in your data? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, direct action groups, educational groups, and solidarity groups alike in my sample do all have this overarching similarity, and that's that they exist um, to promote LGBT inclusion and to promote LGBT equality. Uh, so even though I do find that LGBT participants are particularly drawn to solidarity groups, um, that overarching LGBT organizational identity um, does prove to be a draw for LGBT students who aren't necessarily uh, the kinds of people who always get involved in promoting direct action or who aren't most interested in um, talking out um, uh, issues related to the intersection of um, religious identity and sexuality, which is what educational groups often often do. Um, the LGBT organizational identity that's common to all three types of groups does mean that people with really salient LGBT identities will nevertheless uh, get involved in types of groups that they at least I might not expect it, uh, not, might not expect them to be involved in um, otherwise. Um, but I do show that people with really salient activist identities, for example, um, really do focus on involvement in the direct action group more than any other. Um, a lot of these activists, um, people with pre-existing activist identities were heterosexual, for example. So the solidarity group that really existed by and for LGBT people wasn't really a great fit for them. Or people for whom religion was extremely salient, um, which again often included straight people, um, the solidarity group wouldn't be much of a draw for them. And kind of surprisingly for me, the religious identity was really at odds with participation in direct action groups. A lot of people who had a really salient religious identity were pretty conservative, uh, pretty conservative Christians, and they just kind of bristled. They really did not like the idea of getting involved in a very public protest. Um, so they really shied away from heavy, heavy involvement in those kinds of groups. 
but LGBT people, they were, they were pretty involved in all three types of groups. And I just wanted to read this um, quote you have f- about, it was a basically a donor for Belmont said, you know, Belmont has to decide whether they want to be a nationally recognized university, particularly with their school of music business, or if they want to be a church. And so I sort of thought that that was like the perfect quote for this chapter. So I was hoping you could talk more about how you saw this creating change happening from your interviews. Yeah, absolutely. So that that person you quote is actually uh, there's actually a really interesting story behind that. So um, I conducted um, I conducted um, much of my research from Nashville, Tennessee. I went to Vanderbilt University uh, to complete my PhD, and the school Belmont University uh, was right across the street, and it had been affiliated with the Tennessee Baptist Convention. Up until 2009, it had a ban on uh, homosexual acts and homosexual behavior um, uh, up to that time and even a little after it. And uh, students uh, at Belmont University began uh, mobilizing uh, in favor of an inclusive non-discrimination policy and in favor of an official LGBT group uh, when a lesbian soccer coach at the school was suddenly fired or at least um, departed from the school under very um, confusing terms. And um, the students at that school really, really emphasized the idea that being a Christian means loving everyone. And they really tried to reiterate um, an alignment with Christianity and support for LGBT rights. Uh, And that caught the attention of this donor uh, named Mike Kerb, uh, who is actually a former Republican lieutenant governor of California. Um, He was a fairly conservative person, uh, and he uh, is the man behind Kerb Records, um, uh, a record uh, label record studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, His own name was... Uh, on some of the buildings at Belmont University. He provided a lot of funding for Belmont University. Uh, And so that quote, that really, really powerful quote, uh, saying that Belmont needs to decide uh, whether it wants to be uh, a church uh, or a university. Uh, And another quote he gave that said pretty much uh, along the lines of, I swear, if this is not changed soon, I will continue speaking out about this for the rest of my life. Um, that kind of message from a really powerful donor that reiterated the Christian messaging of a lot of these student protesters um, uh, as well. Um, um, the really caught the attention of uh, Belmont's administration uh, and convinced them to change in their policies. Yeah, so I just thought it was sort of interesting, you know, how it's not just the activist group too, but it's like sort of outside influences on these changes as well. That's kind of interesting. That's right. Yeah. I really think, um, I really think money talks. Um, and it's a lot of these schools alignment with rather conservative denominations that hold money over their heads. Um, and their receipt of funds from, uh, donors, uh, who want particular policies that can prevent from prevent them from changing, but in the case of Belmont, actually um, allowed them to finally go ahead and approve an LGBT group 
uh, and adopt an inclusive non-discrimination policy. So then in chapter five, you move into talking about how being involved in these activist groups actually impacts these students' future. Um, and it you kind of talk about the political impact, the career impact, but also like the family and relational impact. So I was hoping you could sort of tell us a little bit about how, how you saw that happening in your interviews. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm engaging with a body of literature on the biographical consequences of social movements that shows that even when activist groups, even when social movements do not always achieve the goals they um, really wanted to bring about, they still at least have really, really powerful, enduring impacts on the lives of their participants. Um, and so I'm engaging with some prior insights from that literature, um, but also showing how the unique types of activist groups that I identified in my study can induce different types of impacts in the lives of their participants. Uh, so direct action groups, uh, those groups most embodying, uh, most resembling uh, the social movement groups that scholars traditionally study um, are most likely to graduate participants who go on to pursue social movement involvement or political participation. Um, for example, uh, Neil, the anarchist that we talked about at the beginning of the interview, went on to be really fully engaged, fully employed in direct action organizing in Washington, D.C. Um, but I also talked to people from educational groups that are, again, about establishing a shared set of values, raising consciousness about those values through more conciliatory institutional means, who began to see themselves as activists as well, um, but they wanted to pursue social change through pursuit of humanistic careers after graduation, uh, jobs with church reform organizations, for example, um, or careers in social services that cater to the LGBT community. A lot of my respondents said that getting up in front of a large audience, um, sitting down one-on-one -on -one with the leaders of their schools um, really helped them gain a skill set um, that was really highly transferable to a lot of those careers. And then finally, solidarity groups um, that um, were really trying to build a safe space on campus and to facilitate members' personal growth. Um, most often graduated participants who sought to bring about social change uh, on a very individual level basis. Um, and interestingly, a lot of them reported that they revised their family plans as a result of participating in their LGBT group. Um, they said they now plan to enter into more equitable marital partnerships. Um, they plan to raise really tolerant, really accepting children uh, who would be much more tolerant and accepting uh, than their parents had been oftentimes. And uh, finally, I'll mention there was one kind of impact that was just extremely common across all of the Christian colleges and universities, across all the participants I talked to. And that was really immediate uh, impacts in their existing relationships with family members and friends. 
a lot of them simply felt emboldened to talk about LGBT issues in really frank and direct ways with family members, um, with friends, um, and again, in really frank and direct ways that they wouldn't have uh, prior to participation in an LGBT group. Um, so overall, this participation in LGBT groups uh, was just deeply empowering, uh, but in some distinct and unique ways uh, for different participants. Great. Yeah, I thought that, that was really interesting, sort of how that plays out um, for each of them, for each group. Um, so then in the conclusion, um, what I really liked actually about your conclusion is that you sort of give us key takeaways, which I hope you'll let us know today. But also you point out that you have um, your study came about with, you know, both theoretical and sort of bigger picture um, takeaways. So I was hoping that you could sort of give us um, those in terms of, you know, the theoretical ones, but also sort of these bigger picture ideas. Absolutely. So we've talked about a lot of the theoretical implications um, over the course of the interview. Um, two of the biggest being that, number one, um, the idea that there is just a single prototypical activist who we can find in pretty much any activist group uh, in the country, um, that prototypical activist is, is largely a myth uh, and, in fact, might be the minority in a lot of movements. Um, a lot of people involved in LGBT activism don't have a lot of the basic, basic uh, previously assumed prerequisites for activist group participation, uh, including attitudinal affinity with their um, LGBT group, um, including uh, being embedded in personal networks full of people who support uh, their commitment to LGBT equality. Um, so that's one theoretical takeaway. There are very distinct kinds of activists uh, all mobilizing to pursue social change. Uh, the second major theoretical takeaway um, would be that uh, we need to adopt a more inclusive understanding of activism itself. Uh, there are multiple ways to engage in social change, which is how I define activism, the pursuit of social change. You can do it through the confines uh, of a social movement group, um, but as I think uh, scholars of women's movement and other LGBT movements have become increasingly sensitive to, you can also do it through um, education, you can do it through consciousness raising, you can do it through everyday activism, through everyday conversation with, uh, with one's peers, with uh, one's family and friends. Um, I note those as some major theoretical takeaways for scholars, but I also emphasize these broader implications, I think, for um, all kinds of readers. LGBT students attending Christian colleges and universities um, are a very disadvantaged uh, minority in many ways. They face bullying. They face harassment uh, from their friends. Uh, many of them have been rejected or go on to be rejected uh, by the people who you'd expect that um, would love them the most, their family members, um, their brothers and sisters. Um, you would expect this group to be victims, to be resigned to their fate as victims. And it certainly is true that rates of suicide um, and rates of mental illness are quite high among the LGBT student population, uh, especially at these colleges and universities. But the major takeaway um, I think for 
um, the broader public is that these LGBT groups on Christian colleges and universities move students from merely being these victims of some pretty oppressive campus cultures to being change agents. And they foster resiliency. They foster agency and a lot of students. Um, and even when they do not convince administrators to change their policies, even when they haven't caught the attention of powerful donors or um, denominational officials uh, and convince them to uh, change the policies at their schools, they go on to live really fully, uh, really, um, really meaningful lives, really full lives. Uh, and perhaps they'll go on to be change agents and uh other um, Christian venues in their Christian denominations at large um, and, and certainly in society at large. Um, so that was a big takeaway for me. These LGBT groups have the potential uh, and certainly have for many um, accomplished moving students uh, from merely being oppressed to really being change agents who, who go on to do some really great, powerful things in life. Um, so today we've been talking to Jonathan Coley about his book, Gay on God's Campus, Mobilizing the LGBT Equality at uh, Mobilizing LGBT Equality at Christian Colleges and Universities. Um, so thank you for being here today, Jonathan. Thank you so much for, for having me. I really love this podcast series and um, um, you've been a great host. Great. Thank you. So um, what are you working on now? So I am finishing up some small projects related to... Um, LGBT issues at Christian colleges and universities. Um, I'm uh, working on a paper, for example, that identifies the presence of student handbook bans on homosexual acts and homosexual behavior uh, at Christian colleges and universities uh, in their student handbooks. Um, I'm also continuing a major research project um, drawing on oral history interviews uh, with um, people who participated in the Nashville Civil Rights Movement of the early 1960s. Uh, I've been really lucky to work alongside the sociologists Larry Isaac and Dan Cornfield, uh, the historian Dennis Dickerson, uh, and a civil rights activist, uh, James Lawson, um, to try to understand the, um, uh, the lives of civil rights activists, um, to really hear their stories, um, over 50 years, actually, um, after they participated uh, in Nashville civil rights activism. Uh, and I certainly am going to uh, continue to pursue additional research on social movement participation uh, and especially um, LGBT uh, mobilization uh, in uh, religious contexts. Uh, and I'm in, in the very early planning stages of a project on LGBT mobilization within Christian denominations uh, more, more generally. Those sound really interesting. So thanks again for being here with us today. Absolutely. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure to talk. Thank you. Take care.